Greetings, welcome to episode 2.13. I'm enjoying my newfound freedom with this new headset with a microphone that allows me to do what I just did. I stepped onto my balcony to enjoy some fresh air as I record. The first movement from Beethoven's Piano Sonata number 14, the Moonlight Sonata, is one of those works that I listen to every performance of as I continue my odyssey through the history of recorded music. There are numerous pieces like this that I never get tired of. As I was listening to one performance and adding it to my collection of all these uh, playlists, I was musing on the fact that, to begin with, when records could only hold a certain amount of music, a much more limited amount of music, I mean, performances of this movement, Adagio Sostenuto, were often quite fast. And with the introduction of longer playing times on records, many pianists decided on much more relaxed tempi. And it occurred to me that it was David Lynch, who is also a musical genius, who took this to the greatest extreme in season three of Twin Peaks. One episode of that season features a long scene with ghostly, haunting music that seemed strangely familiar when I was first watching that scene. And later, upon looking into this, I discovered that that music that seems like a series of slow, ghostly plonks following a steady progression was actually this movement by Beethoven, the Adagio Sostenuto from the Moonlight Sonata, but slowed down to such an extreme that I would guess most people would not recognize it on first hearing. Because it is slowed down so much, I think that some of the lower frequencies disappear. If you're interested in this, you can find on YouTube a speeded up video of this scene, so you can hear that it is indeed this piece. That's a fantastic inspiration. It's a grisly, disturbing scene, and certainly one of the most remarkable uses of the Moonlight Sonata, or the first movement ever. Time also slows down or gets distorted for one of the characters who witnesses the grisly scene and he's unable to escape. Instead, he just howls in panic at what he's witnessing. Over the years, David Lynch and his frequent musical collaborator, Angelo Badalamenti, who is a fantastic composer, one of my favorites, and I consider him one of the greatest musical geniuses ever. He has the gift of simplicity, which all poets have, and I consider him a poet also, who speaks through his music. I was saying that they've often experimented with this technique of slowing something way down. There are many pieces in the work of David Lynch where the soundscape is music that has been recorded and then slowed down greatly. And in interviews with Angelo Badalamenti, he has often mentioned that when they were creating the music together, it's a real collaboration with David Lynch right there with Angelo Badalamenti much of the time. Mr. Lynch would often say slower, 
to get a certain mood. Music is so fascinating. It's really a set of simple things, simple choices. When you're thinking of a piece of music you want to create, you only need to answer these simple questions by asking yourself what the idea you have calls for. Should the music be fast or slow? Should it be loud or soft? Should it be simple or complex? What instruments are right for it? And so on. Then, of course, the combinations multiply and the possibilities are endless in answering these simple questions. So, like Mr. Lynch has often said in interviews and talks, the idea tells you everything. In other words, whatever idea you have, the answers are already embedded in the idea. So, you need to only stop, take a moment, and consider the idea. And all the answers will come that way. And if not right away, sooner or later, as you keep working at it and finding answers to different parts of that puzzle. Creating a story can also be like that. I myself have written in many different ways. Sometimes I write just on the spur of the moment. A whole story can be written without any planning to begin with, but some stories. Especially longer ones can be born in fragments, and it's a joy to find each fragment, place it into the story, and with each piece, the greater piece keeps forming. This is how it often happens for me with stage plays and screenplays. With the short stories, it's usually been the method I mentioned first, just sitting down and writing. But the main thing is to remain open to that happening at any moment. To always have a way to write down anything that occurs to you. That's a daily, steady process. It's extremely rare for me to go through a day when no fragment gets added to something I'm writing. I'm finishing recording this little fragment of this episode at 1 29 pm. My plan is to do this episode of the podcast by doing this throughout this day, whenever something occurs to me. Now I'll head back inside and do some work and get something to eat. As I record this, there are countless wildfires burning in western United States. I was reading about the causes of wildfires, and according to National Geographic, this is a quote from an article on their site. Though they are classified by the Environmental Protection Agency as natural disasters, Only 10 to 15% of wildfires occur on their own in nature. The other 85 to 90% result from human causes, including unattended camp and debris fires, discarded cigarettes, and arson. In other words, 85 to 90% of wildfires are due to human ignorance, negligence, or malice. It's 2 46 pm. 8 19 pm. One of the great things about the third season of Twin Peaks is that you could go on showing scenes from that season, scene after scene, to someone who hadn't seen it and who wasn't familiar with the story, and they still wouldn't know what the story was about. There's such variety, and the fragments stand so well on their own. To me, that's a fantastically inspiring feature of this season. And of David Lynch's work in general. 
fragmenting a story for its own sake wouldn't do any good, and it would be just a trick. But when it's done because the story demands that, as with Mr. Lynch's work, then it's beautifully freeing. And as a writer myself, it's super inspirational to know that stories can be told that way. This fragmentation matches how life is. And I would say that it matches psychological reality of living better than stories that are strictly linear and where you can tell all the connections, how different moments connect. Life has both discontinuity and continuity. The reason discontinuity excites me as a creative person is that every discontinuity opens up a space for the audience to enter into the experience. And whenever such a space is open, that helps make the story uniquely experienced for that person. Stories that show all the connections and that explain everything, usually through dialogue, leave no room for the imagination and they leave no room for the audience member to bring their own experience into that. It doesn't become a unique story if everything has already been filled in. More and more as time passes, I feel oppressed and annoyed that so many storytellers not only give us the dots, but they connect the dots for us. So there's nothing left to do. You're supposed to let the dots be connected by the audience. As a creator, you yourself also connect the dots, but you shouldn't impose that personal way of connecting the dots on the audience. By doing that with everything in a story, you take away the best of that story. I think the third season of Twin Peaks reflects life better than any other TV series I'm aware of. Life these days is even more fragmented than it used to be. Many of us watch more clips than we watch films or episodes. We read fragments of articles or stories. Communications are often fragments of a long continuing chain of communication. For example, a tweet, another tweet, then a tweet from the first person, and so on. And another thing that's exciting to me about stories composed of fragments is that you are freed from having to glue everything together. Often that process of gluing removes all scope for imagination. And imagination is the thing most needed in stories and least to be found in them, especially these days. When storytellers seem to want to do ever more and more, leaving the audience with ever less and less. There's a TV film called House of Secrets that I feel pretty sure no one listening to this has seen. It was only shown once in Finland when I fortunately happened to tape it onto VHS. It's set in New Orleans and stars Bruce Boxleitner and Melissa Gilbert, and it has a terrific, beautiful soundtrack by Anthony Marinelli. It's not a glowing, inspired story in every way, but there are moments in it 
that made me watch it over and over because I could find those feelings and those atmospheres in almost nothing else. In one scene, the characters quote a song called If Ever I Cease to Love, which they also refer to as the song of Mardi Gras, because it's been associated since the 19th century with the Mardi Gras parades in New Orleans. The song itself is actually an exuberant jazz piece, but the way that scene was done made me see the lyrics as quite beautiful and poetic. It was a melancholy, intimate moment when they quoted those lyrics. There are slightly different versions of these lyrics, but here's one set of them now in the public domain. If ever I cease to love, in a house, in a square, in a quadrant, in a street, in a lane, in a road, turn to the left, on the right hand, you see there my true love's abode. I go there a-courting and cooing to my love like a dove, and swearing on my bended knee, if ever I cease to love, may sheep's heads grow on apple trees, if ever I cease to love. If ever I cease to love, if ever I cease to love, may the moon be turned into green cheese, if ever I cease to love. She can sing, she can play the piano, she can jump, she can dance, she can run, in fact, She's as sweet as a rosebud, and lily flower changed into one. And who would not love such a beauty, like an angel dropped from above? May I be stung to death with flies, if ever I cease to love. May I be stung to death with flies, if ever I cease to love. If ever I cease to love, if ever I cease to love, may little dogs wag their tails in front, if ever I cease to love. For all the money that's in the bank, for the title of a lord or a duke, I wouldn't exchange the girl I love. There's bliss in every look. To see her dance the polka, I could faint with a radiant love. May the monument a hornpipe dance, if ever I cease to love. May we never have to pay the income tax, if ever I cease to love. If ever I cease to love, if ever I cease to love. May we all turn into cats and dogs, if ever I cease to love. May all the seas turn into ink. May black be turned to white, may the pumpkins grow on apple trees, may cows lay eggs, may fowls yield milk, may the hawk become a dove, may beggars refuse to eat cold meat, if ever I cease to love. May I be frozen to death with heat, if ever I cease to love. If ever I cease to love, if ever I cease to love, may all the rivers run uphill, if ever I cease to love. Lyrics by George Laban if ever I cease to love. Several days later, I ended up not having time to record more the day I started recording this podcast episode. So now it's September 18th, 3.04 a.m. Yes, I'm awake at this time. I was thinking of the Canadian pianist and writer Glenn Gould, who is my favorite pianist out of them all, no longer alive. Glenn Gould is someone I feel a kinship with. I like to think that I could have been friends with him. He was a strong-willed, special person. He had many health problems and what other people sometimes call eccentricities. But to me, those kinds of descriptions of artists have become meaningless because every artist worth anything 
is out of the norm, out of the ordinary in some way, or many ways. Those differences are fascinating to me, and they only increase my liking for these artists. There's a video on YouTube of him playing, towards the end of his life, the Aria da Capo from Bach's Goldberg Variations. That is the most beautiful performance of that piece that I have ever heard. He seems to be really one with the piano. Nothing in his performance that we see and hear in that video is done just for show. I don't like showy performers who consciously adopt certain poses or expressions or make certain flourishes just to impress viewers. Nothing in Glenn Gould's performance is just for show. All of it, what he does there, wasn't necessary for this performance. That result could not have been achieved if he had not let all of it happen that happens during that performance. He retired from performing in public early in life and started making recordings, video recordings or filmed recordings. And while that was considered at that time by many to be, again, an eccentric thing to do, it's very easy to see now that he was simply ahead of his time and he knew to start creating a legacy that went beyond his audio-only recordings, his performances captured in that way. That's a very valuable archive of material. They showed some of those programs on Finnish TV in the late 90s or early 2000s, and I videotaped some of them. That was still the VHS era. I only wish I had all of that material for myself, but I haven't had time to hunt it down yet. But I'm now coming in my odyssey through the history of recorded music to the time when his recordings will start appearing quite soon in the pages of the gramophone, and I'll be able to start enjoying his work chronologically. One of the great pleasures of this journey through the history of recorded music is whenever one of my favorites enters the arena, or a song that had never before existed suddenly comes into existence. All of human history until that point had happened without that song. And when I started this journey, the vast majority of songs that I have come to love in this life didn't exist. The trickle of really good music, of really good pieces, was slow at first, very slow. In the 20s, it was very rare to come across any recording that would go on my permanent favorites playlists. In the 30s, it started going up. In the 40s, even more so, but the floodgates are really opening now in the 1950s. I'm in 1951 as I record this. I can't describe the thrill of getting to the point where Caccini's Amarilli was first featured. It absolutely gave me chills because it's a song with deep personal significance for me, and now I knew that from that point on there would be recordings of this song. A similar thrill was coming across the first recording of Riders in the Sky, also known as Ghost Riders in the Sky, 
which has been one of my favorite songs since childhood. No wonder it was voted the number one Western song of all time by some Western association, people specializing in that area of culture. It's worth pointing out that that boat chose a song with supernatural elements to it. It transcends other country and western songs, which were actually often called hillbilly songs at that time. Hillbilly was the term they had before country and western became the more usual description. You can hear that term hillbilly used by Bob Dylan in interviews where he talks about the variety, the great variety of music that he used to listen to before starting making his own recordings in the 1950s. Hillbillies were among them. And even though when I was younger, I would never have thought that it would happen over the years, the expansion of my musical interests led me to even finding many songs of the country and western type that I genuinely enjoy. Of any type of music, of course, the vast majority is unappealing to any one person, I believe. I think almost no one can like pretty much any song, and that's true of this type of music as well. That tradition of music introduced things into the singing and playing of music that weren't part of it before that. I also know that Noel MacDonald enjoys a lot of country and western music, and that makes me like him even more. All my favorite artists and all my favorite people are just themselves, and they don't follow things that are popular only. They follow whatever works for them whether it's old, new, or somewhere in between, or indeed, timeless. 3.21 a.m. No one seeks suffering, and no one should knowingly do that, but some people end up having no choice except to go through painful experiences, sometimes for very long times at a stretch, and that ends up forging their souls into something very beautiful and putting them in a place where they finally have no choice except to create. And that creation will be more meaningful than something created by someone who never had real hardship in life, who never really suffered and who never really stared at the abyss straight on. I think everyone that I love who is a creative person at some point or at many points found themselves in such a place in their lives that they considered ending their existence in this world or ended up wishing that they were no longer alive. Going through certain experiences changes you irrevocably and I think people who haven't experienced that firsthand may live a radically different and virtually separate existence from those who have had experiences like that. I've sometimes, often times, thought that there seem to be two kinds of people from my personal self-oriented perspective in this case. People that I can relate to, 
people that I seem to be on the same wavelength with who are people that I could have a conversation with and that I could become friends with and then people who are simply of almost another species whose values are so different and whose experiences are so removed from things that shaped my own life and continue to shape my life. There seems to be no possibility for these two types of people to meaningfully be part of each other's lives. I'm not putting them in different value categories. I'm simply acknowledging the difference. I've noticed this, although I wasn't thinking of it this analytically back then, since childhood. Some people I simply could not connect with on any level, and some rare ones I could. I've never had many friends, and the ones I have, at least still, I really value. As time passes, I'm ever more disappointed by ever more people. As I believe happens with most of us. But there are still a handful of people who have never disappointed me. And that I'm very grateful to have known. And to know that they have liked knowing me. I'm not going to embarrass anyone by mentioning their names. I no longer assume even that anyone would want to be associated with me. I sometimes frankly feel like some kind of strange creature that no one really wants to associate with. I could try to make light of this now and say that these are night thoughts and I'll soon not be thinking these thoughts, but actually I'm describing something that I've often thought. However, my intention isn't to make this podcast heavy. I wanted to give more energy than it takes. Ideally, I would wish it not to create any kind of negative feeling, but it takes a very special person like Norm MacDonald to have such a positive energy that even when he is talking about death or difficult experiences, he finds ways to make the experience of hearing about them something very positive. I wish I had more expressive words to describe why I appreciate him so much. I wish I could make everyone see how special what he has done has been. But I'm afraid that the world we live in is largely the result of the kinds of things people seem to like and also the result of things that they don't even notice. And the combination of those has resulted in a world that is not the best we could do. All I can do for my own part is concentrate in any way I can on the people and the things that I feel are really the best things in life and the best people. And if I can in some way help them, that's what I want to do with my life. You may have noticed that this was an unusually long episode. This was like a set of diary entries. This whole episode was recorded on my new headset. I'm still testing what kinds of results it gives in different contexts also. Everyone out there who has listened, I hope that this was worth your time. Take care.
and good night.